point I would make about the, 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 the cost of, uh, of freedom, as it were, is that actually it is always worth paying. Welcome. So it's always great to have back Dave DeCamp. He is the news editor over at antiwar.com. How are you doing today, Dave? I'm good, Armando. Thanks for having me. No problem. So here I have Max Siegel. He was a Bernie organizer and he worked within uh, Nevada and he's also joining us today uh, on this conversation. How are you today, Max? Doing good. Thanks for having me. There have been quite a few developments over the past few weeks since since our last talk, Dave. In particular, there's this G7 slash NATO summit. Uh, the G7 summit has been taking place over the last week. And they were, I think, as I noted with you in a chat, it's some really bizarre statements that have come out of the G7. A lot of homoerotic things. And homoeroticism is not bizarre. It's just the tone in which that they're trying to strike in the G7 and also NATO that went stronger than ever. In particular with Boris Johnson's speech today, he has really been figure, a sort of figurehead within Europe and really around the world for supporting Ukraine and, and giving them weapons and also moral support and, and a lot of PR. He and the NATO summit have, as he stated, agreed to, quote unquote, explode myth. We've agreed together uh, to work to explode some myths. We have to explode the myth that Western sanctions are in some way responsible for these price spikes when, of course, it is the, the Russian uh, invasion uh, that has caused the uh, shortages of food, and, uh, and it is Putin's bl blockades uh, that are stopping uh, the, the grain leaving uh, Ukrainian ports. And one of the myths that he was driving home was that the United States and Western sanction regime against Russia due to their invasion of Ukraine is not to blame for the price hikes and high inflation that the UK is seeing. I mean, they're going to hit like probably 10, 11, 12% this year. It is wild to me, this idea that they are going to spin a narrative now after two, three, four months of this sanction regime to say like our sanction regime doesn't have anything to do with skyrocketing prices. It all has to do with Russia and their blockade of Ukrainian ports. Yeah, well, it's interesting, actually. I think it was last week Biden gave a speech about gas prices. He asked Congress to suspend the national <laughs> gas tax. And in that speech, you know, he blamed it on Putin's price hike and, you know, gave that line. But he also, you know, admitted that it was the sanctions, he said. But it wasn't just Putin's invasion of Ukraine. It was refusal of the United States and the rest of the free world to let Putin get away with something we haven't seen since World War II. I said at the time, siding with Ukraine during the most serious aggression in Europe since World War II, defending freedom, defending democracy, was not going to go without cost for the American people and the rest of the free world. We were going to have to pay a price as well in the cost of military equipment, economic assistance, humanitarian relief, and sanctioned Russian banking industries. Russia is also the largest or one of the largest oil producers in the world. We cut off Russian oil into the United States, and our partners in Europe did the same, knowing that we would see higher gas prices. We could have turned a blind eye to Putin's murderous ways. The price of gas wouldn't have spiked the way it has. I believe that would have been wrong. I believe that then, I believe then, and I believe now, the free world had no choice. 
he said if he didn't respond that prices probably wouldn't have spiked as much but what what was i supposed to do do nothing uh you know he said a few lines like that so that was kind of revealing and you know you see really the west they're really kind of flailing now that the sanctions have backfired on the west as americans and europeans are really feeling the economic pain and russia is profiting more off oil than they were before the war you know you have Putin and his war machine are, are doing just fine now. I'm sure that the economic pain that's being felt in Russia is by ordinary Russians, which is what sanctions do. That's what history tells us. You know, this was easily predicted by me and just about any anybody that's paid attention to this issue for a few years now. And so, and then at the G7 this week, that this is the brainchild of Janet Yellen, the Treasury Secretary. They said they're going to explore putting a price cap on Russian oil, which is just such a silly plan because it it requires Putin to say, uh, okay, yeah, I'll only sell my oil at this price, sure. And it requires China and India to cooperate, and they, and they haven't really cared about the pressure from the U.S. to not buy as much Russian oil as they've been. They're already buying it at, at a discount. They have no reason to rock the boat. So it's just really uh, kind of pathetic how they are trying to uh, fix this crisis that they created, really. Yeah, I mean, it, it really is wild to me. The idea that the United States is going to consider putting a cap on oil coming from a different country. And, I, and I'm guessing their, I guess their sort of rationalization, their thinking is, is this is the cap that us and our trading partners are going to set on what we're willing to pay for Russian oil. I guess, I guess maybe that's it because the Russian president and also the, the Russian government were trying to, a, a few months ago, trying to implement a plan that was somewhat similar and that they were only going to go about accepting payment for fossil fuels, whether it be natural gas, coal, or oil in terms of Russian rubles. And that was an attempt to be able to circulate Russian currency throughout the world economics. And even with Lithuania, I think I also mentioned that to both of you, and Max, I definitely want to get your take on this. Lithuania began blocking any movement of goods into and so it does seem as though that they've abated quite a bit when it comes to those fossil fuel imports. But it is it is interesting because as you stated, you know, India, it, it look according to oilprice.com, it looks as though India's Russian oil imports have soared by 50 fold. And it says some 40% of the total Russian oil imports are going into private refineries. So they are shipping it out raw and having them go about refining it actually on the Indian mainland. So it is fascinating to me that that blockade on Russia isn't quite meeting the energy exports that they have. And yet we're seeing the kind of explosion in price that we are. And I know to me, I definitely think that the spike in oil prices, in particular gas prices here in the United States, I actually went back and I looked at the EIA. They have a subsection of the energy department that specifically looks into crude oil and gasoline inventories and prices over time. And the EIA has as back as far as 2014, when gas prices were about this high in terms of adjusted for inflation, Shell's profits, Chevron's profits were as high as they are today. And it does seem as though that the fundamentals across the world in terms of uncertainty as to what could happen in terms of demand from the Western countries, but also the kind of uncertainty there is in terms of like actually getting resources out of Russia and into the global economy. No one really knows what they can and can't buy. And the uncertainty is, is not simply just the sanctions, the uncertainty is, is what is the, the quote unquote West going to do next? 
when it comes to trying to quote unquote cripple the Russian regime. Max, what are your thoughts on that explosion in in prices in terms of gas and also the the spiking price of crude oil? Oil prices are obviously due to the high sanctions. I don't think anyone disputes that. And the prices appear to be driving the ruble higher. And because of that, that's why Russia is getting richer. Lithuania at the moment has decided to allow fossil fuel exports into Kaliningrad to be exported to the rest of the world. And that's in Northern Europe. That's sort of been an outpost uh, since the end of World War II of Russia's. And so And they kept it after the fall of the Soviet Union. It is disturbing that Lithuania, because it is a NATO country, would decide to simply stop allowing transport of items. Because at first it was a writ large transit ban into Kaliningrad. It is, you know, kind of disturbing the idea that they would leverage their NATO membership and this idea that Russia wouldn't dare do anything to Lithuania due to Article 5. This suicide pact is what it is. An attack on one NATO country is an attack on all of them. And so it just seems to me it it was entirely unnecessary and incredibly reckless to decide that they were just going to cut off an actual sovereign piece of Russian territory. That was very, very bold. I mean, when Western press really didn't have any commentary on it, it was big news in Europe, but the Western press in terms of the United States, really had no commentary on it. Yeah, it's interesting. Lithuania, the pretext that they gave for why they were cutting off this transit was the sanctions that have been passed by the European Union. And they, Lithuania claimed they were simply implementing the sanctions, letter of the law, and that they had no choice. But I think it's pretty clear from the fact that now this is being negotiated and there appears to be some compromise in the offing between the EU, between Lithuania and Russia to allow this Russia to Russia transit. It's pretty clear that the European Commission in designing these sanctions, the architects of these sanctions never anticipated that Lithuania would do this. And why they didn't, I think, really just speaks to the sort of incompetence and lack of organization that has plagued the entire isolate Russia effort for months now. They should have known, obviously, that Lithuania, like Poland, like a number of these countries that are right on the border with Russia, actually has a tendency to push things right to the brink, to be much more hawkish, much more provocative than countries that are much further away that have stand to lose a lot less in a confrontation with Russia. And it's interesting to think about, you know, what is the strategy there? This is trademark Lithuanian foreign policy to test the limits like this. But, you know, what is the strategic objective of being so confrontational? And, And why is it that we see these countries that are closer to Russia actually trying to provoke some sort of clash or to provoke NATO to come into the rescue. I think basically what it is, is that on the one hand, they know that they're secure. They have this Article 5 commitment. On the other hand, they don't actually feel secure until there are tens of thousands of U.S. and NATO troops stationed there, and they have every missile defense imaginable, and they actually feel that it's not just them on the front line, it's all of NATO together. 
it's a real risk. And we see these freelancing actions that aren't exactly coordinated with the rest of NATO or with the US. If you remember very early on, there was this visit by three of these Baltic states. They decided to just take a trip to Kiev to go visit Zelensky and show solidarity there. And this is way before Russia had ever pulled back from Kiev and focused on the East. And for all they knew, a stray mortar could have come and you know derailed their train car. And then it's Franz Ferdinand 2.0 and we're off to the races with some kind of big, big escalation. I think that Biden in particular needs to do a much better job of cracking the whip and basically saying we do everything together or we don't do anything. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it, it certainly needs to be centralized. And the United States continues to say that it is the preeminent power of NATO, the, the presumption of NATO, that the, the basis of NATO's power has always been the United States. And, and this imagining that somehow other countries are going to be provocative in that way, because NATO is, is a nuclear alliance and the chance of nuclear war and what nuclear war means is not a joke. Twice in terms of prominent history within the 80s, but also in particular with the Cuban Missile Crisis, there were several opportunities for the United States to go to nuclear war with Russia. And people like Fidel Castro were encouraging the Soviet Union to go to nuclear war with the United States. And what the real consequences of something like that is, is the irradiation of the soil and the air fallout that would exist really all over the planet, nuclear winter that would stop the growth of of much of the world's crops and on and on it goes irradiated water i mean it, it goes on it is it, it's incredibly devastating the kind of effects that something like that would have and no one would win that it is disturbing that someone would go out that any country would go out there and just be provocative but, but then again that's never stopped the united states <laughs> right never stopped us you know dave it is interesting that the United States and the West opened another front in the Ukraine and Russia war, which are these economic sanctions. And to frame that, NATO and the G7 summit, those countries have always overlapped in terms of the members of each of those organizations. But really, this week, they have sort of tied in the G7 summit along with the NATO summit. And they have, and by they, I mean the West, have really gone about pushing this idea that we can bring the Indo-Pacific countries in, those that were looking to sign a pact in order to keep China contained, I guess, within the South China Sea. It does look as though that within the G7 summit, they were able to commit at the very least $600 billion in what they're calling a strategic infrastructure fund to go about countering the Belt and Road Initiative with China. And I really want to get your thoughts on that because Boris Johnson and Joe Biden have been talking about that. And it seems that under Joe Biden, at least, is really going to go all in on this idea that there are enough rare earth minerals and, and materials around the world for us to be able to build out renewable energy everywhere. Everyone can have it. And that's the kind of investment that we're making. I mean, to me personally, I think it's 20 years too late to start that kind of counter to the Belt and Road Initiative. I just I just think it's too little too late. Yeah, I definitely think, you know, it's pretty late for them to start this effort. You said it's a massive amount of money that they're pledging to this $600 billion among the G7, $200 billion. At least. Yeah, $200 billion just from the 
from the U.S. But it's interesting to see up till now, the U.S., their influence around the world, for the most part, especially when you really look at Africa, you look at the difference between China and the U.S. and Africa, it's a pretty stark difference. Africa, there's secret special ops, U.S.-led special ops going on across the continent. There's drone bases bombing Somalia. You look at what happened to, in Libya, and you see what China's doing, and they're building roads and bridges and all this criticism of China is that it's debt trap diplomacy, which I, I don't know how much truth there yeah. is to that. But if you see how the U.S. kind of deals with other countries, there, there are all these strings attached always. If a government gets in power that the U.S. doesn't like, they put all these sanctions on them. They really meddle in their affairs. And it doesn't seem like China does that. Now, can a country default and be in debt to China? Yeah, that might happen. But that's not as serious as a country trying to manipulate your politics at like the US does. And uh, there was just a poll in China said about 76% of the people asked view China's influence as positive as opposed to about 60% viewed the US influence as positive. So in certain parts of the world, in the parts of the world that we're not seeing go along with the sanctions campaign against Russia in Africa, Southeast Asia, China is kind of winning the the influence battle in the U.S. doesn't really know how to respond to that because they've always controlled the world through a naval presence and a lot of military bases and CIA coups and stuff like that. So yeah, and you mentioned the G7. Really, I think it's just Japan, right? That's the only non-NATO country. They're playing a really big role in the U.S. kind of pivot to Asia that seems to well, I thought it was finally really happening, but then all this, this war in Ukraine happened. The U.S. is really encouraging Japan to build up its military in South Korea. They lifted restrictions that, on South Korea that allows them now to build long-range missiles. The new president of South Korea is more hawkish towards North Korea and China. He wants nuclear, U.S. nuclear weapons to return to the Korean Peninsula. They haven't been there since 1991. And the U.S. is building this alliance with Australia and the U.K. meant to give Australia nuclear-powered submarines to patrol the waters near China. So you see kind of this Western military NATO expansion, really, heading towards the Asia-Pacific. It's just going to, I think, lead to a similar path. And speaking of the Lithuania-Kaliningrad things, it really shows how these kind of entangling alliances give Lithuania a war guarantee you can't control what they're going to do in certain situations. I mean, it's a country, I, I think their population is only 2.8 million. Their armed forces are about 20,000 right. strong, and, and they're taking this really provocative step. I think right. what Max said was right in that they're, they really want more U.S. and NATO troops on their soil, all the Baltic states do, and Poland. So I, I think this might have been an effort to get that. It's from a report I read yesterday in Reuters. It seems like Germany is kind of leading this these talks to make a compromise with Russia and allow sanctions exemptions for the goods that are being transported from Russia to Kaliningrad, which goes through Belarus and, and Lithuania. Because, I mean, it's Russian territory. It's, so I think they could definitely make an exemption. But yeah, I mean, it shows the danger. Now we have Sweden and, and Finland are, are heading to join NATO. Finland yeah. has an over 800-mile border with Russia. So it's just uh, another step. I mean, things are um, things are getting really bad. I mean, today Biden said that they're going to support Ukraine in mm -hmm. the war for as long as it takes, and that they can't yeah. lose, which means they he wants them to win the war. Which no, I mean, and that's a nice goal, and that's great. And morally speaking, in terms of what's right, that's absolutely true. There is no reason why Russia should be allowed to succeed in being able to essentially use violence and 
beat a country into submission. Like, I don't think anyone thinks that, I mean, now look, <laughs> now look, that, you know, the, there are people like Nick Fuentes and uh, who's a famous white supremacist online and quite a lot of other people who have those sort of Z armbands and have Z in their names and all the rest of that stuff on Twitter and their social media platforms who do see Russia's invasion as a good thing. I mean, you guys remember that as this invasion was starting to kick off, Republicans in large part, uh, at least the establishment was kind of like playing this game of footsie with, with Donald Trump's words. Like, yeah, I mean, this isn't too bad. You know, the, this is actually kind of a good thing. We enjoy seeing this. And it's not the first time that, that the more conservative party within the United States would have allegiances to a right-wing government, because regardless of what you hear in the United States press, Russia under Vladimir Putin is nowhere near the Soviet Union, not even close, not even close. That guy doesn't have any ideology outside of blatant, ugly, brutal violence to expand his own power and his nation state's ability to project power. I mean, I, thought, I don't think oh, there's really like establishment Republicans and that, that support Russia's war. Even the more populist, you know, Republicans that are voting against all these bills, none of them are saying that they're that they support what Putin's doing. Maybe outside of the party, but I don't no, see I just, it actually in Congress. No, I do. I, I mean, I just want to. I just want to point this out. Um, you know, Donald Trump at the time had put out a statement. Vladimir Putin's very smart, very strategic in doing this, and he's going to be able to essentially keep the territory that he's gone about invading. And much of the Republican caucus were sort of putting out statements and also playing footsie with the idea that the United States shouldn't be uh, engaged in sending aid to Ukraine. Now, yeah. um, I mean, I, I agree with that idea. <laughs> I don't think right. the US should be involved at all. Right. And that's perfectly legitimate. That's a that's a bit of foreign policy different. And that's exactly why I stated before that, that you had to be very, very careful. People have to be very, very careful in, in stating that simply because someone else states that they do not support U.S. involvement or at the very least uh, are going to be a, a counterweight to the U.S.-led war effort, that somehow that means that they are a mouthpiece for this, that, and the third. Mm. To be very careful with that because that could very easily be turned around on us once and by us, I mean the left, once another president comes into office and suddenly their war isn't to our liking, suddenly we could be targeted for that as well. I, I did want to make sure that I made the point clear that in terms of this sea change that's happening economically on the world stage, like we were talking about last time, the United States is essentially trying to put out there that we also can support the global south and the united kingdom with boris johnson he also said you know we're their partners and that we are on their side and that we are on their side and that somehow without that support or somehow that without that funding going out that there wouldn't be an ability to bring the global south into the what they call the rules-based order <laughs> and that rules-based order is it sort of sounds like the new world order out of, out of the 90s but really what it is is the united states the european union and great britain probably in that order <laughs> of course great britain wants to be above the european union in that order but our collective ability to be able to dominate world trade resource organization and have a say on who invades what and who bombs what at what time because fundamentally, I mean, bombing innocent civilians and sending rockets into malls in order to maim and kill people isn't really something the United States is like absolutely dead set against. Like the United States 
on a regular basis throughout the Iraq and Afghanistan wars, not to mention the proxy wars that we've been fighting and drone wars that Barack Obama waged throughout the Middle East and Africa. We on a regular basis have bombed medical facilities, hospitals, medicine factories, schools. Israel on a regular basis targets schools. So it's not out of the realm of possibility that the West targets those areas. So I think it's, I just don't think that it's completely out of hand, this idea that the United States and NATO are against these war crimes by Putin. And that's the reason why we have to go after this. And what's really hiding behind all of this is, as I said on Twitter, the United States influence is really declining around the world, especially on the world stage. And we had essentially an attempted coup in January 6th of 2021. And to see the extent to which our political process has devolved, how there are now political parties and actors within the United States politics that are no longer interested in having to concede elections. They want to go about constructing elections in a way that will be more beneficial to them. And it does appear that they're looking to go about having state legislatures overturn results of elections within their states. And the extent to which that plan was really put into motion is kind of wild. I do want to make sure that I frame this correctly. It is fascinating to me to see either it be Donald Trump or Joe Biden are just incapable. The United States is incapable of providing the world the resources that the BRICS countries are offering in terms of China, India, Russia, Brazil, and South Africa. You have Argentina now who are asking to join the BRICS countries. And I think that's really fascinating. And I think that was a major motivating factor as to why now NATO and the G7, or particularly the G7, are looking to pony up more money to encourage Indo-Pacific countries and what they call the global south, what they mean by developing countries, to go about investing and, and forming partnerships with the United States and the West. It is incredible to see that. And I think personally that application by Argentina in particular was that movement point where it's like, okay, yeah, now we do actually have to go about setting up a fund to at least try to attract some level of investment and economic partnership because this sort of colonialism that Iran and Argentina and so many other countries have been under since the end of World War II is really now no longer sustainable. Now we're going to have to work with these countries and help them develop. And, you know, you say debt trap diplomacy. Many people do accuse China of having debt trap diplomacy. There are airports, there are rail stations, there are seaports that China has gone about trying to seize in the aftermath of having countries default on their debt. And really a large part of a lot of the struggle that's going on in the world right now, Ecuador is almost in almost in revolution again given that they've had a general strike where people are simply like it's leading to nearly like riots in the streets for food and it's happening all over the world in in sri lanka and also in other smaller countries throughout the indo-pacific a lot of these countries cannot afford the the price of oil that is in u.s dollars or even in rubles don't want to run afoul of the United States and also can't ask for help. And so they're in this catch-22 moment. They don't quite know what to do. It's a positive development, right? That the U.S. and some of the other Western countries are trying to increase our investment, increase our economic engagement with 
the so-called global south. It's unfortunate that what seems to have prompted this in large part is actually the unwillingness of most countries in the global south, not unreasonably, to join our effort to isolate Russia. I think that uh, we're really kidding ourselves if we think that by increasing our economic development with all these countries that are also trading with Russia, also trading with China, that in the future down the line, they're ever going to be willing to actually break off relations with one of these other big powers uh, and join us in isolating them. It's not the case that they prefer a Russian or Chinese-led order. I don't even think it's the case that they necessarily prefer a multipolar order. They're small countries and they simply can't afford to make such a, a powerful enemy over a conflict that is so irrelevant to them, basically, as what's going on in, in Ukraine. And I think the model that a lot of people in the Joe Biden orbit and Western circles had for how this coalition would go is something like the first Gulf War, right? Where in trying to build a, a coalition to isolate and ultimately push back against Saddam after he invaded Kuwait, the U.S. was able to get on board all kinds of countries from Africa, from Asia, even got significant buy-in from, from Russia. That's just not going to happen with a conflict like this. And I don't know if it points to declining U.S. power. It could be that. I think it's also the case simply that Russia is not Iraq and you're able to get people to join you in isolating Iraq, but you're never going to have all these countries decide, okay, we're going to side with the U.S. or we're going to side with Russia against the U.S. They're, they're just going to hedge their bets. And I think part of what's happened is that the after the breakup of the Soviet Union and the, the Cold War, the U.S. never really got out of this mode of good and evil, black and white. Now it's democracy versus autocracy. So we still are conditioning our relationships with all these countries on their internal politics, on their political system. Whereas China and Russia just say, we won't mess with you. We won't interfere with your stuff. We just want to trade. And that in many ways is a much more attractive prospect for countries around the world. I just wanted to mention, I mean, you said before that the hypocrisy of Biden condemning Russian airstrikes and stuff. I think that's something other nations are kind of really sick of because, you know, yep, we just spent the last 20 years bombing countries across the Middle East and North Africa. Biden's last airstrike in, in Afghanistan killed a family of 10 innocent people. And when the war in Ukraine started, I mean, the war in Yemen was the airstrikes were the worst they've been in years. And the Saudis were bombing civilian infrastructure like they always do, like they have since 2015, since the war started. Thankfully, there's been a ceasefire for over two months now that's actually been holding. And there's a war powers resolution in Congress. So that might actually end. But I mean, that that was happening. You know, nobody paid attention to that. It barely got, the war in Yemen barely gets any news coverage. And then Russia invades Ukraine. You know, they act like it's this unprecedented thing. I mean, you had Condoleezza Rice on the news saying that when a country involves another sovereign nation, it's a war crime. Yeah, I think people are really getting sick of that too. I mean, even now you see Biden's going to Saudi Arabia next month to meet with MBS. 
you know, oh, we can't buy oil from the Russians. We have to turn to the Saudis now. He could also lift sanctions on Iran and Venezuela, but that's not happening. I mean, there's been renewed talks with Iran, but apparently they didn't go anywhere. So there's other steps he could take. I think you really saw that come to to a head at the summit of the Americas, which I think we talked about last time, how the Mexican president didn't attend and other leaders didn't. And some of them had stern things to say about the U.S. while they were there. Yeah, it's, it's always very sternly written. It's, all, it's always in terms of rhetoric. It's, it's supposed to be very glaring and very declaratory in this. But I did take a look at, uh, at the kind of comments that were being made. People like Madison Cawthorn did go out there and state uh, that Volodymyr Zelensky is quote unquote a thug and incredibly evil. Now, the corruption of the Ukrainian government is well known, and the suppression of freedom of speech and expression within that country is nothing new. In fact, it was a major stumbling block to Ukraine's ability to actually join uh, not only NATO, but in particular the European Union, because you have to agree to the European Union's rules and laws in terms of protection for minorities and, and different socioeconomic classes in. Even before this war, it was a major stumbling block as to why Ukraine could not join the European Union. So that's not news. A lot of people would call not supporting the Ukrainian war effort, quote unquote, pro-Russian. I don't agree with that assessment at all. You know, Donald Trump saying that what Putin did was smart is all on its own. He's he's essentially still the head of the Republican Party, regardless of who's at the head of the, of the RNC. But I just wanted to make sure I circle back to that because I'm going to add that part into to what we talked about before. I don't want to relitigate that. The, the real important part is that right now, Russia has, in effect, been able to maintain a land bridge over southern Ukraine of Crimea, including the major city of Kherson, and now Mariupol and Sevastopol. They've had to pull back from Odessa, and they gave up Snake Island simply because they really weren't able to put a military installation down there. But it does seem as though that Russia has won this war, and it seems that there's this constant propaganda effort on the behalf of Ukraine and really their voices in the form of Boris Johnson and Emmanuel Macron, just this constant push in Europe. They're going to win. They're going to beat them back. It's only a matter of time. We just need to give them more money and more weapons. And insofar as I can tell, the the Ukraine, I mean, this is a country of what, 40, 50 million people? Like they can't fight a country that's three or four times their size and has a much larger economy than theirs, has a much stronger uh, historical and like in terms of infrastructure, military presence. It's just, it doesn't seem that it's possible to me. Yeah, well, I mean, they really built up the narrative that Ukraine could win the war, you know, over the past few months. And that's kind of been collapsing as Russia is still, you know, they're making slow gains, but they're kind of constantly making these gains. And it's a brutal artillery war on the ground. Lots of people are dying, but now you see, Russia controls most of Luhansk, which is half of the Donbass region. I mean, they control pretty much the entire province and they control more than half of Donetsk. And then the other provinces north of Crimea, and which is Kherson and east of that is Zaporizhia. And, you know, they put in these military administrations and, and these, you know, Russian backed Ukrainians that are in charge now, you know, they want a referendum for annexation because they want to join Russia now because if Ukraine comes back in, they're going to have to get out of there. And so now before the war started, I mean, Russia's demands were for Ukraine to recognize Crimea, you know, drop its claim to Crimea and to recognize 
before the war, it was to give grant autonomy to the Donbass separatists. They would still remain part of Ukraine, but then after they invaded, they they said to recognize their independence. But as the war goes on, you know, Ukraine's losing more and more leverage, and and what it will take to drive Russia out of this territory is just a massive offensive that I don't know if Ukraine's capable of it, and if they are, or if they try to do it, and or if there's just a long bloody insurgency, I mean, it'll be dragged out for years and years, possibly a decade. And uh, that's what the U.S. appears to be signing up to support. And it just seems like there's no end in sight. And it's really dangerous. I mean, this is, you know, the highest risk of nuclear war since the end of the Cold War. If the U.S. and Russia go to war, it, there's, it could turn into nuclear war very quickly. And it seems like people don't really understand, understand. that that risk. And it's really disappointing to see a lot of the people that, you know, going along with this. And we should really be doing everything we can to stop the war through diplomacy. But the Biden administration has completely abandoned that. Lincoln hasn't spoken with Sergei Lavrov since February 14th, which is months ago. And they had a meeting scheduled right before Russia invaded. But after Russia recognized the independence of the Donbass, Blinken canceled his meeting with Lavrov, which to me, if you're a diplomat, if that's your job, that would have been the time to say, okay, what what could we possibly do to prevent a war? What they didn't really try, in my opinion, to prevent it. No, and no, they didn't at all. And it, again, it's just this this idea that the United States through NATO in even through the European Union is just is not going to negotiate any inch of its territory. And it's to the point where they're not even they literally aren't going to negotiate. And I just don't think that it's going to be possible. And prolonging this war, especially if Ukraine cannot win it, I think is incredibly morally irresponsible, not to mention irresponsible in terms of, as you stated, starting a freaking nuclear war. Quickly, I know, Dave, that you have to go in a few minutes. So I really did want to get to this point. You know, I talked about earlier this month, about 10 days ago now, I wrote an open letter to the president and vice president regarding uh, the NSO group, who is founded by and for Israeli intelligence officials, they have a software that's called Pegasus or Phantom that they use as a weapon. People who are be against their state, their ethno state in Israel, in particular Palestinians, but also African migrants. They had a bounty system out just a little while ago, or just a few years ago that they stopped. I really want to get your take on that acquisition by L3 Harris of NSO that they're trying to push through the White House and the Commerce Department, not to mention Ron Wyden, thank God. And the Senate has been stating quite openly that should not happen. It's a huge security risk because this is, of course, foreign software that's used as a weapon. Like before NSO Group even sells the software, technically, officially, they're supposed to get licensed from the Israeli Ministry of Defense. So it is incredible to me to see Israel, and even here now within the United States, the Eighth, the eighth Circuit of Appeals has now stated that boycott is uh, a boycott is not a fundamental part of the first amendment and that is that is so wild that is so wild like like one of the original the planks of 1776 like that is the rights calling card this is 1776 1619 that that's their calling card and this idea that somehow boycott is not involved in the first amendment is just wild to me what are your thoughts not only on that sale, but also really Israeli influence on United States politics? I personally think it's a reactionary and a repressive one and one for bad and not good. 
Yeah, well, just about the NSO sale, it, you know, it's it's interesting because they found this spyware. It targeted government officials across the world, really. And mm -hmm. now they're, they're looking to buy it. And it's funny, too, because they always accuse China of, you know, spying on us with TikTok and stuff. <laughs> but... But and then I'll just say because I gotta I gotta take off. But about the boycott stuff, I mean, if you saw right, yesterday, right. Uh, Unilever, the parent company of Ben and Jerry's, yeah. they mm -hmm. they sold their operations in Israel uh, of Ben and Jerry's to an Israeli company because the ice cream company said they weren't gonna sell their ice cream in uh, what they call the occupied Palestinian territories, which means Israeli settlements in the West Bank and East Jerusalem, which are illegal to everybody yeah. in the world except for the United States because Donald Trump changed that policy. When this happened, you know, a bunch of Israeli officials launched what they called a maximum pressure campaign to get this boycott, which it wasn't really a boycott of Israel at all because they were going to keep selling in Israel, but to get this reversed. And they did that by pressing governors in the U.S. because over mm -hmm. 30 American states have anti-BDS laws on the books. Insane. To take action against Unilever, which they did about six or seven states took steps towards divesting their pension funds divesting you know unilever stocks from their pension funds and Insanity. sold it off and it was Insanity. because of that pressure i think that unilever went ahead and sold its operations in israel now ben and jerry's the company they said oh, they yeah. don't agree with it it's against their values but once yeah, you sell I, off of your company you really don't get a say as to what happens to that to that yeah, part of the company it's true so but yeah i mean it really shows how those laws can be used to pressure i mean unilever is a british conglomerate but ben and jerry's is an american company they were founded and yeah. everybody knows them as an american company from vermont and to see how they were kind of pressured and manipulated using laws that we have on the books on behalf of a foreign power it's pretty it's a pretty That's, important issue that more people should uh, be aware of and and that's really the thing that gets me is exactly what Dave said, which is this idea that a foreign government has the ability to be able to come to the United States and form laws that are anti a boycott of their state. Like that's that that is wild to me. That's like South Africa being able to. And the thing is, I mean, the, the Bantu stands and what South Africa was doing in terms of repression of their population was something. But now, in the case of Israel, this country has carte blanche to do whatever it wants, not only to the occupied territories that they keep, that they openly call occupied territories, not only are they so brazen in doing so for that reason, but they're also brazen in their ability to be able to sell spyware and use U.S. technology and U.S. companies to pressure other countries and be able to spy on other countries and intimidate and bully other countries into the ability for Israel to have dominance over their politics. In the United States, the Israeli lobby is, just as Dave said, has 30 different states have these anti-BDS laws on the books. And a lot of these laws vary, but in essence, many of them say that if you're a state employee, you have to swear that you will never participate in boycott, divestment, or sanctions against the state of Israel, which is just a foreign government, which is just one of the wildest things I've ever heard. And this country could, on the world stage, not only have spyware, a carte blanche to, of course, have secret nuclear weapons that it, of course, doesn't have. I'm sure they don't. And on top of that, are able to repress their own native population there in their attempt to make an ethnostate. Many people would 
conflate the idea of a boycott, divestment, and sanctions movement against Israel for trying to create an ethnostate and literally trying to ethnically cleanse their area. That is definitely a matter where the world should be unified in our condemnation of such an activity and somehow try to conflate that. And it is Israeli propaganda and and, and the Israeli states trying to shape a narrative whereby any criticism of the state of Israel, it's anti-Semitic because the state of Israel is the place in the world where Jewish people belong. And if you don't agree that the state of Israel in its current conception of no one is allowed to get married outside of those who are Jewish, no one is allowed to own homes outside of those who are Jewish, no one's really allowed to vote outside of those who are Jewish. And there's, of course, a ranking of a hierarchy there in terms of skin color, not just in terms of religion. And that's something that's a huge carryover from Europe. Israel, especially places like Tel Aviv and their urban centers, really remind everyone who visits there of Europe. But it is incredible to me that this reactionary government not only gets away with what it does on the foreign stage due to United States largesse and protection of Israel on the UN Security Council and vetoing any resolution that comes that criticizes Israel, calls for an investigation or anything of the sort, but it is able to impact domestic United States politics to the point where there are 30 different states, just like Dave DeCamp said, whereby you are simply unable to support boycott, divestment, and sanctions of the Israeli government project of an ethnostate and also work publicly. You have to essentially swear an oath stating that you will never support that. And people like Abby Martin, who have been targeted by laws that are similar to that, have taken matters to the courts and have actually won in the case of Georgia. So I definitely wanted to get your thoughts on, of course, everyone loves ice cream, the Ben and Jerry situation, but really how it is an an illustration of the kind of political power on the international stage that Israel has when it comes to their ability to try and dampen down any sort of criticism of their ethnostate. Yeah, so I I think that the battles that we're seeing over these anti-boycott laws on the state level, it's really the latest battlefield over the impunity that has been granted to Israel. And that starts, as you say, with the United States and its protection of Israel on the international stage, chiefly at the UN and at the Security Council. For a long time, Throughout the end of the 20th century, in the 90s, the early 2000s, and this is still kind of true, other countries have been willing to allow the U.S. to have the Israeli-Palestinian file, as it were. That this is, that the U.S., okay, they're obviously closer to Israel, but, you know, we had Oslo, we had the Camp David Accords, the U.S. has this historic role of brokering the peace, and as long as they're trying to broker some kind of long-term solution that you know is a two-state solution the the rest of the world has really been willing to defer to the US and and in fact this had no no choice because the US has been willing to veto 
and block any kind of alternative um, paths to, to resolving the conflict that don't occur through direct U.S.-mediated negotiations between the Israelis and the Palestinians. It, in the meantime, the prospect for a two-state solution, for a viable Palestinian state, ha- has all but disappeared in the minds of most observers. Yeah. The U.S. preventing anything from, from happening outside of this negotiation framework really doesn't really doesn't make sense. And this is where the apartheid conversation really comes in. You can argue that apartheid isn't apartheid on the first day of it, because you can say, look, this is temporary. Everyone's working towards a different solution. Right. We're all looking for the guy who did this. Right. Exactly. Exactly. So you think if you think that a two state solution is still possible, that, that Israel is really you know, willing to work earnestly towards that, then, okay, you can say it's not, it's not apartheid. This isn't the intended system. We don't intend for this to be permanent. But the fact is that that's what you've got. And until, until that changes, it's apartheid. And with the U.S. government being unwilling to do anything about it, it's fallen on individual citizens and individual companies to say, well, even if our government isn't going to do anything to try to pressure Israel to give Palestinians their rights, to give Palestinians a state, to resolve this terribly unjust situation, we're going to do something ourselves. We can't, in good conscience, continue to support this. So really, the best way that the U.S., if it wants to help Israel, can combat these BDS laws, really the best thing that they could do is to have a more responsible, proactive policy themselves and not have it fall upon regular citizens to try to take foreign policy into their own hands. And because otherwise, yeah, these laws exist. But the truth of it is that every time these laws come up for a legal challenge, they get struck down. There are exceptions, but in a few years you've had the cases challenging this law, which is basically the same law in 30-something states, yeah. in Texas, Arizona, Georgia, Kansas, and Arkansas, and all of them, with the exception of Arkansas, have been found unconstitutional. So, I mean, that's what makes this case interesting. It's going to go to the Supreme Court, and ultimately, I have a really hard time, maybe I'm naive, but I have a hard time seeing this Supreme Court uphold a law that so clearly violates the First Amendment. I don't think that they'll be able to do it. I'm not sure that they'll completely overturn these laws. Maybe they'll find some way to weasel out of it or do some half measure. But I don't think that these things are a long-term solution for Israel and Israel's defenders, these uh, anti-BDS laws. No, and the suppression of speech is is never an actual solution to the problems that you face as a nation state ever. I mean, it it never works. But the thing is, that's the I that, that that's not the point. The entire point of this is is simply to stop the speech now, because as I said, it, it, the the state of Israel, 
not even perhaps the, the will of its people. And you know, look, that is for pollsters to figure out, and that's for the state of Israel to come to a consensus on. I mean, the, the kind of government that they regularly vote in and their platforms are abhorrent and are an affront to quote unquote Western democracy and human decency. I know a few months ago when the quote unquote clashes were breaking out between Palestinian worshipers, those who had come to the Dome of the Rock in order to worship there, literally to pray, to get on their knees and pray, they quote unquote clashed with human decency and just going in there and just stained glass windows that are older than far older than the united states probably far older than the slave trade itself it is insane to me that we have allowed a state a a rogue state a reactionary right-wing outpost within the middle east because they are on the mediterranean because they are english speakers because they are open and dependent on united states foreign aid it's just it's incredibly distressing to see that they are now testing the integrity of our civil liberties and the integrity of our republic and it's very upsetting because those sorts of ideas can easily be exported and many of those laws are in republican states and right-leaning states it's despicable because it suppresses speech and on top of that it brings us to a point where we have the supreme court where now They are essentially going after civil liberties left and right within the United States. They just eliminated the right to privacy and vacating Roe v. Wade and completely overturning it. It is the target is now open. The the gate is now open. The floodgates have now opened to the point where now we could go about having a significant rollback of speech rights and our ability to organize within the United States due to a foreign government trying to take advantage of United States freedom of speech laws. And really what they're trying to do is suppress the freedom of speech. It's incredibly despicable what they've done. I do want to get your view on Joe Biden's attempt to visit Saudi Arabia and also Israel. I spoke about that earlier with David, that this sort of tour is to essentially ask Saudi Arabia as Joe Biden stated a few hours ago, just today on June 30th, that he wasn't going to directly ask MBS, Mohammed bin Salman al Saud, to go about boosting oil production. And in fact, Emmanuel Macron was told just this past weekend that, in fact, that the United Arab Emirates weren't going to be able to boost oil production, that they were at quote unquote capacity at the very least for the next six months. And it is fascinating to see this sort of world tour and this hope that in order so that they can have boost in oil production, this continual push for the United States to continue to cozy up to right-wing governments. Meanwhile, at home, we've got this hunter at the head of the Supreme Court who is just going about repealing major provisions of what were just a week ago as of the time of this recording constitutional rights and as of friday morning at around 10 a.m on june 24th that essentially was over and it's concerning to me to see the parallels between the two especially given israel's ability to export those kind of laws or repressive laws when it comes to free speech and freedom of expression freedom to protest 
to the United States and are willing to fund and put pressure on United States politicians and court cases in order to go about exerting its influence and being able to maintain its empire for just a little bit longer. Yeah, so the Saudi trip is really interesting because no one can really figure out exactly what Biden and the administration are trying to accomplish or hoping to accomplish. A lot of oil experts don't think that even if Biden is able to extract you know, the maximum promise of, of help bringing down prices from Saudi Arabia, they don't think that the Saudis or the Emiratis or others can rapidly increase production in such a way that is going to make a, a huge difference in the near term. Down the line, they can, but Macron it wasn't just making that up. I mean, I think he probably said it on a hot mic on purpose to try to, to pressure Biden into taking a smarter approach, but it's true that the some big thing on oil isn't going to come out of there. So why are, why are we going? Oil for security is the basic premise of, of the whole U.S.-Saudi relationship. It's completely transactional. On some level, it makes sense, right? And you can't fault right. Biden for if what he was doing was looking to lower gas prices, lower oil prices. I mean, I think actually that's something that would be much more defensible and that the American people would go for. The administration seems to have calculated otherwise. They have really downplayed the prospect of getting anything on oil, even though clearly they're going to try, and have instead talked about a a peace deal. And that while Biden has to to go because if there's a chance for peace, the quote-unquote peace deal that they're talking about is something between Saudi Arabia and Israel, some form of normalization akin to the Abraham Accords, which we saw between UAE, Bahrain, and Israel, and Morocco later. That appears to be what the Biden administration thinks is the most palatable way to sell the trip to the American people. In reality, there are a number of reasons why they need to coordinate with the Saudis. And it's not just oil. They have to figure out something some kind of strategy for Iran, whether or not we get back into the nuclear deal, you know, you've got to get everyone on the same page and you need to end the war in Yemen. We keep extending this ceasefire there, hoping that that'll allow the Saudis some face-saving way to, to get out of what has been a totally disastrous and unwinnable war. But that needs to happen. And it's important to remember that the whole reason that the U.S. started supporting the Saudi war in Yemen in the first place was in the hope that it would buy support, political support, from the Saudis for the U.S. nuclear deal with Iran. That support never came, and it doesn't appear to be forthcoming now, even if we were to get back into a deal. So, we have to really think about what are we trying to get. I, I don't, you know, in principle, I think it's fine for, I don't oppose Biden meeting with anyone. I meet with MBS, meet with Kim Jong-un, meet with the Ayatollah or Putin or whoever. Right. But the worse the regime 
or the government or the regime is that you're going to meet with, the more important it is that there be some concrete deliverable objective that you're trying to achieve there. And that's just not clear from the Biden administration what that's going to be. One last thing on the oil front. It's interesting that we're willing to go to Saudi Arabia kind of hat in hand to beg for oil. It's also worth looking at all the things that we're not willing to do, that the U.S. is not willing to lift sanctions on Venezuela. The U.S. is not willing to lift sanctions on Iran. Two things that could rapidly deliver millions of barrels of oil per day to the global market and drive down prices. And obviously, the thing that's driving up prices the most is this new endless war that Putin has launched in Ukraine, but which we are not doing anything really to end. Biden initially, his instinct was good initially. In the lead up to Putin's invasion and in the first couple of weeks afterwards, he said, we're going to make sure that we punish Russia for this, but we're not going to let the American people bear the brunt of that. And we're really going to hold off on anything oil related because that would be too expensive a price for the American people to pay. How that political calculation changed that now he thinks that actually it's better to go all in on Ukraine and that the American people will be fine with just paying more because Ukraine is so important. I think that's a total miscalculation. And uh, I, I don't know really the reason for why that shift occurred. Yeah, I mean, it is it is absolutely, you're absolutely correct in that and drawing that parallel that this is the Ukraine-Russia conflict, the Russian invasion of Ukraine, how it's being encouraged and how it is being funded and how it's being framed ideologically in terms of rhetoric for the population, but also in the halls of power is that this is going to be an endless war. We don't have a set goal or, or in this case, there is a sort of set goal that is there that Boris Johnson has acknowledged several times before is that they want to return to February 24th borders which is the day that the invasion began. They want the borders to stay the same as they were before this conflict kicked off. And and as I said, you know, morally speaking, in terms of what's right, of course that should be the case. But practically in terms of a military goal that can be met without real slaughter that will just continue and a continuing sort of pile up of weapons without the men or women that are needed in order to man them or to work them is 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 a real possibility and and while this forever war goes on on the other side of this there is a nuclear power with a gentleman who sees himself as the infallible and the absolute leader of russia and that his authority won't be questioned and that the state of russia is going to expand its power and influence while he's at the head of it he's sort of taken his moment to do this you know this isn't iran or iraq this isn't syria this isn't afghanistan this is this is an entire this isn't somalia or yemen this is an entirely different game here russia has nuclear weapons and with a miscommunication uh, a fighter jet shot down bombing a missile hits a u.s ship or whatever could occur 
There could be an escalation that ends in a nuclear exchange, and any nuclear exchange is completely and totally unacceptable. It's 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 a wild moment to consider the kind of danger that Europe and the rest of the world is in as we continue to push these so-called forever wars, as you put them, especially in the case of Ukraine. I'm so glad that you framed it that way. I, I did want to ask you one final question. Israel continues to target Al-Aqsa Mosque, continues to target. And just a few days ago, there was another announcement out of uh, some Palestinian organizations online that Israeli security forces were going to be storming the Israeli security forces were going to storm Al-Aqsa Mosque again. And it does seem that they went about doing that. What do you see as the purpose of Israel storming that facility over and over and over again? And do you think that their willingness to do so and their brazenness in doing it has anything to do with the United States in the form of the Donald Trump presidency recognizing Jerusalem as the capital of Israel with plans to place an embassy there? This has been building for a while. And it started off with the first time that most people can remember a major clash breaking out, uh, quote-unquote clash breaking out at Al-Aqsa is in 2000 or 2001, I think it was 2000, when then Prime Minister Ariel Sharon decided to go onto the Temple Mount to go up where the Muslims pray, which historically had been, you know, their section of the mosque that Jews don't find holy, or they, there are some who think that maybe Jews were buried under the temple, under the rocks there, so they don't want to step on it. For, for all sorts of religious reasons, there has been no reason, no value of that spot to Jewish worshipers. That had held for a while until Ariel Sharon decided that he wanted to make this point that Israel is only allowing the Palestinians to pray there and that they don't have to, and that in fact every inch of this is all uh, Israeli land from their standpoint. So he marches up there with you know this huge brigade of uh, security forces surrounding him, which is incredible and in, incredibly incendiary. And that's, that's how you get the, the next intifada. That's, that's how it starts. Right. But it also, it catapults his political prospects because he was the, he was the bold leader who was willing to stand up for Israel to be politically incorrect, to put it mildly. Um, it, a lot of this comes from, that a lot of this comes from politicians within Israel, whether they're local council members looking to be mayor or mayors looking to be members of parliament or to be prime minister, for them encouraging people to to escalate to and saying, yeah, well, why can't we go here? That's how these things start, and there's really there's no clear strategy to me for it that that serves Israel in any way. The images that come out of this are horrible for Israel from a diplomatic standpoint. You see them beating worshippers, storming these mosques. 
it really seems to be pandering to you know the most fringe elements in Israeli society and it happens what happened this year actually was that the the Jewish and, and Muslim calendars happened to coincide in such a way that the holiest days for Muslim worshipers was also you know the day before or the day after a Jewish holiday so all these religious Jews decided that they would mark this holiday by asserting their rights on the Temple Mount. You know, to tell you the truth, there are Palestinians who are fed up with the peace process, Palestinians who think that the only time that anyone paid attention to them was during the Intifada, and they're not totally wrong about that. They know that this is going to happen. They anticipate it. And on both sides, I'm not drawing an equivalency here, but both sides look forward to these dates on the calendar knowing, okay, we're going to have a showdown. And they they have to find some way to, to avoid that because it's it's just awful. Yeah, it's it would be absolutely terrible. And that, you know, ethnic conflict only ever benefits the worst. War only ever benefits the worst of either side of that war no matter how many different quote-unquote sides there are to it both entities if it is a two-pronged conflict of any kind the worst in both are always brought out and it's unfortunate that if there is an antifada or something along those lines it would be so awfully and brutally suppressed but it would only serve the most reactionary the most right-wing seemingly within the Palestinian movement for justice and liberation, but also, of course, feed into the hands of those who would look to make a parliamentary majority off of it, which, I mean, we saw Benjamin Netanyahu do that for well over a decade, just continue to foment ethnic conflict and conflict within Palestine and give justifications as a means to shore up his own political career. And it's, it's incredibly shameful because it, it, it not only, of course, costs the lives of tens of thousands and the untold suffering of millions within the open-air prison that is Gaza and the, the maximum security prison that is the West Bank and the occupied territories. I really do thank you, Max, for being on today. I appreciate your patience with all little small technical uh, details and things that got in the way. I really hope to have you back on. And, of course, this was Max Siegel. He was an organizer with the Bernie Sanders campaign, uh, particularly within Nevada. It was really great having you on, Max. Yeah, great to be here. Thanks a lot for having me. And Dave, it's awesome seeing you here. I'm so glad you were here. Hopefully we get to talk sometime in the next few weeks, um, another few weeks from now. So thanks. All right, man. Thanks a lot. Take it easy, Max.